Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to, to Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Hannah Blackiston. Hello. Brittany Rigby. Hi, Tim. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, we'll be talking to podcaster and journo Mark Fennell about... Telling quirky stories. By the time you hit episode two, I'm in a bulletproof vest in an armoured car travelling around with uh, investigators in the dead of night. How to get the most out of a junket. All right, well, what what can I offer you that you might enjoy and, and might bring you to life? And why he's got no career plan. I get bored quite easily uh, and, I, and I like different challenges. Plus, we'll be talking to Sonia Kruger about whether audiences really want to see Big Brother return. It feels to me like everything that's happened this year has just given more relevance to the return of Big Brother. How the show tackles diversity. We have people from different backgrounds, uh, different, different cultures, you know, pretty much all walks of life. And what sort of housemate she'd be. I'm the tidy housemate. I'm the cleaning up after everybody else. But first, the week's topics. Big job moves in Adland. News Corps closes its women's website. We find out just how bad the ad spend numbers were. And why publishers' Facebook strategies are now in legal limbo. So let's start with the week in media. Hannah, the SMI numbers, Standard Media Index. Now, I've got to admit, I was really hanging out for these numbers because it felt like this is the credible snapshot that we knew it was going to be bad, but now we know how bad it is. Yeah, especially because this is um, the first full month of data that we've had from the beginning of the COVID-19 restrictions. So as you said, this is going to be the first full snapshot that we're getting of how much the lockdown and, you know, associated restrictions are actually impacting the industry. I must admit, though, I think perhaps I expected a bit of a bigger drop. So the SMI data shows that agency advertising expenditure dropped by 35.4% across the board. Um, If you look at the breakdown across each industry, every industry fell, obviously. Some were impacted more than others. Outdoor, in particular, took a big drop, 61%. Magazines, another big drop, 52%. um, And then everyone else was down at least 30%. Digital fared the best, 27% drop there. So it's not particularly surprising that the numbers have fallen, obviously, with a lot of companies really struggling during the pandemic. And I suppose it's not um, surprising at all that outdoor was the hardest hit, considering we haven't actually been allowed to leave our houses. But yeah, it's, it's inter- what's interesting, I think, is while this is the first kind of figures we're seeing from the full lockdown period, it definitely won't be the last and SMI in particular with warning that next month is likely to be even worse. And speaking of uh, outdoor, um, on Thursday as as we were recording this, O Media, the outdoor firm, had their AGM, which is a chance to update the market. And I, you know, they 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 made the point that, for instance, they're they're out of home airport, where of course nobody is at the moment. Uh, of course, was you know you'd, you'd be surprised if anyone carried on advertising really. Um, one thing that surprised me though, Hannah, is I know you listened into the whole thing, but when I when I kind of looked at the the updates they they put to the ASX, I've always thought of O Media as being pretty transparent with the market with the latest news, and there was lots of talk about market share, but I was really surprised that they didn't actually share a number for how they did in April. Yeah, it was a bit of a general meeting with a difference, I think. So at the very beginning, they said you know, as we released our financial year results in March for um, FY19, we're not actually going to talk about specific figures. Instead, we're going to give you a snapshot of what we've been doing to kind of counteract the COVID-19 pandemic. So as you said, there wasn't any numbers at all, really. It was, you know, there's a lot of cost saving across the board, which they had already flagged. There's been the equity raising, which they had already flagged. There was a number of board member changes, which they had already flagged. And it was Brendan Cook's last GM, which they had already flagged. So 
it felt like a bit of a uh, revision of the last couple of months in O Media, but there wasn't actually anything solid to kind of grab onto. I think the only data they put out there was that 85% of their April May bookings have now been deferred to the second half of 2020, which they did say has resulted in a significant downturn in revenue, but we don't know what ah, that looks like at this now time. Now, it's interesting you read that that way because there was a se- that, that sentence confused me because I wasn't sure whether they were saying of the stuff that's been cancelled, 85% has now been forward booked or the 85% of stuff has been cancelled or pushed into next year. So it did. Mm. Hey, look, you know, I guess uh, investor beware, but that was certainly a line that I read in a different way to the way that you read it. Yeah, that is interesting, actually. It definitely did feel like some of what they were saying was maybe up and open to interpretation. I guess one person's significant downturn is another person's not that bad considering we're in the middle of a global pandemic but I think what will be particularly interesting is obviously in the next announcement they're not going to be able to shy away from the numbers and I do wonder if they're worried that now that they've kind of not been completely open with how things are tracking if that means that when they do actually share the numbers are those numbers going to be a lot worse than shareholders were maybe waiting for them to be. Now, Viv, you also uh, wrote about O-Media in the last few days because they also announced a bit of a restructure as well. Yes, O-Media is one of those companies that's had a few restructures over recent years, Uh, the most recent one being that its youth publisher Junkie, uh, which was founded by Neil Ackland and Tim Duggan, is now sort of moving into the content and marketing team. Now, Neil Ackland had already taken on an elevated role within O-Media and now he's sort of looking after content, marketing and junkie and everything to do with creative. So it's an interesting move to have a publish a publisher sit within a marketing team. I totally understand the synergies between O-Media and junkie in terms of using the outdoor network to promote Junkie and its brand collaborations and then the feedback to Junkie writing about those brands and it being featured as a as a news story and a, and a content hub. But it's still an interesting structure and different move to have marketing content creative with, you know, a, an independent publisher that writes about all sorts of things that are nothing to do with media and not everything they do is a brand collaboration. I have a bit of a theory, though, that it's just the if there was one thing about Junkie over the years is they've been really good at marketing themselves. So the person who was the, you know, one of the brains of that operation was Neil. So why not get him to do that for O as well? Could it just be as simple as that? That's what I suspect because, as I mentioned, Neil has continued to sort of climb up the the ranks within O Media and I suspect that's because they want him to replicate what he's done with content and creative and marketing on a much bigger scale and so it makes sense to have him still look after junkie while having him transfer those skills to quite a quite a different network though you know a youth publishing network is quite different to uh, an out of home network in an empty airport but uh, I guess they felt that Neil was up to the challenge and uh, I I don't know how much it will change the day-to-day lives of junkie people and that they sort of would have been reporting to Neil anyway. It's not like they're suddenly reporting to some unknown chief marketing officer who has no understanding of publishing. But it's a an interesting move to show how much weight O wants to put behind creative and wants to put behind marketing and, and collaborations at a time when, as Hannah's detailed, they're clearly under pressure. And just as we've been chatting, it has given me a chance to have a look back at the uh, the, the speech from Brendan Cook, which the 85% uh, number that Hannah and I were chatting about was. The actual sentence was, of our original bookings in April slash May, that advertisers will no longer run campaigns in Q2, around 85% have been deferred to the second half of the year. So I still don't know which one of us is interpreting it right, to be quite honest. Um, so um, if uh, if the chief marketing officer is also in charge of communications, then uh, let's start there, shall we? It's quite a challenge to Neil there. Okay, moving on. Uh, a couple of things involving News Corps this week. Um, Viv, let's start with a story you broke, the closure of, and I pronounce, presume it's pronounced women, just women? Is that how it's pronounced, the website? 
It's spelled W H I M N anyway. Yes, I would assume it's pronounced women because it's its women's content network and it's spelt W H I M N, which is the With Her in Mind network. I suspect it was retrofitted, like they wanted to call something women, they wanted the letters to stand for something. So, how can we make it work? It's hard not to read it with a weird inflection, though, when you look at the actual spelling of it, women. but yes, that folded uh, and is going to. So cease. we're not going to need to worry about how it's pronounced no. in the future, then. Well, for the next five minutes or so, we will, but we'll just stick with women for the sake of the listener and uh, for my peace of mind. So, the With Her in Mind network is ceasing publication on the 30th of June. That was launched only uh, in 2016 in a bid to sort of bring News Corp's various female audiences together to one hub to take on the likes of Mamma Mia and Bauer's content network, which is the Now to Love network, and and, and get a foothold where it could be one central place for, you know, career advice, lifestyle advice, and all those things that uh, women allegedly want to need in in one place. It's going to be sort of folded into the News Corp's other brands, including Body and Soul and Stella, which is a Sunday magazine lift out, which is also coming together. So it feels like a case of News Corp now, instead of branching out into all these different sub-brands, consolidating its brands and looking at the ones that might be stronger, the ones that might have some more longevity and cutting all these extra sub-websites and sub-brands that they have. What kind of confused me about this one is we got kind of word of it the day before uh, it was officially announced and it was women is closing, women is closing. But what was confusing was that there was the women platform, which was women.com.au. But then there was also a couple of years ago, I think, News Corp rolled in a lot of their lifestyle brands under the banner of women, which meant Kidspot was sitting under there, Body and Soul was sitting under there, as Viv said. And now they're shutting down the women website, but all these other brands are still continuing. So they're essentially ending the women network which all these other brands are sitting under it just feels like a bit of a short-sighted decision to kind of roll all these brands under one network then get rid of that network and now have extra brands that you're also kind of smushing in together it all seems a bit complicated to me yeah look I suppose it's not the first time it's it's happened as well you know a few years back News Corp was actually quite early to the game with a a, a comment and opinion site which I suspect a lot of people have actually forgotten about now called The Punch which was edited by David Pemberthy um, who um, you know and it was a it was a really good site and I think the idea was that it would then be distributed across the wider news core network of sites and everything else but for whatever reason they decided to close it I suspect there just wasn't enough advertising revenue which I guess might be the same question for for women and then the other one is Am I right in thinking that Rendezvous, which is the sort of the more recent play from News Corps for comment and opinion, which um, was initially edited by Sarah Lamarquand, who I think now is actually editor-in-chief at um, Body and Soul, if I understand rightly. But, But I get the impression that maybe Rendezvous is being downgraded a bit as well. Yeah, I don't think you would be alone in that. We have actually approached News Corp with this question and they have as yet not given us a clear response. But Rendezvous, when it first launched, was, yeah, positioned as kind of a bit of a female-focused opinion platform. Um, But when you look at Rendezvous now, I think I keep changing how I keep saying that. Anyway, when you look at Rendezvous now, it seems to just be sitting as a vertical in the Daily Telegraph, which to me would suggest that perhaps they're trying to roll it in under there. And whether it is still its own brand or not, I'm not really sure. But it definitely seems like another one of these platforms that when it launched was being positioned as a very big movement in that space, but now seems to have just kind of slid in underneath a bunch of other brands. And I guess one other piece of not great news for News Corp in the digital front is that this is, I guess, more about ego than commercial performance, but news.com.au, often number one in the Nielsen ratings, um, has actually slumped down Vivian to number number six now, I think it was, in the most recent numbers. 
it has slumped down to sixth after a 17.7% fall in its unique audience for the month of April. It's worth noting that most of the major news websites had falls in April because in March their traffic was up by absurd numbers like 101% for the Australian and 50-odd percent for somebody else and 60-odd percent for somebody else. So to fall from those astronomical highs in the wake of the coronavirus and everyone turning to news outlets, you're right, isn't necessarily a commercial disaster story. Because it's still an audience of 10 million or something. Yeah, news.com.au still has an audience over 10 million. It is interesting though that Last year, news.com.au was, you know, always on top. It felt like it was difficult to write a story that wasn't news.com.au wins again. A few months ago, ABC News websites took that top role, particularly as the world continued to get more bonkers. News.com.au has now slipped. So the rankings for April, according to Nielsen, now go ABC News websites, followed by the Daily Mail, followed by 9.com.au, 7 News, The Guardian, and then News.com.au. So all of those publishers now have a unique audience above 10 million, but the disparity between ABC and News is more than 3 million. So They aren't sitting pretty at the top anymore and whilst their audience is still commendable, you know, it's not as good to be sixth as it is to be first. And Hannah, uh, slightly a question without notice, Um, that would be as well as The Guardian's done, wouldn't it? Yeah, they. Um, it's quite interesting. I was just thinking while Viv was talking, I can remember news.com.au were the first ones to break 11 million. And I can remember when they did that, it was like, oh my God, what a shocking number. And now everybody's shooting above it um, in these unprecedented times. But yeah, that is the best The Guardian has done. They did really well last, um, last DCR as well. So they've just been going from strength to strength, as has ABC. I think that's probably... Might not be the best they've done because they were probably higher last month, but the last couple of months have definitely been the highest numbers they've ever hit. And Hannah, um, let's talk about the week in television. This time last week we were making our predictions about how the first night of the return of NRL would go, which um, was, was you know, for a, for a two-city primary channel audience, they had a pretty good result, didn't they? Yeah, it wasn't bad. I was quite glad that I hadn't committed to, you know, two million on last week's podcast, but uh, 619 Metro viewers, and as you said, that is across just Sydney and Brisbane, where it plays on the main channel. It plays on Nine Gem in the other markets, uh, just shy of a million viewers across national audiences which isn't bad, as you say, um, but I can't help but feel like we were kind of put in a position to expect better because there was all this talk about, oh, there's been no live sport, there's been no live sport, people are desperate for live sport. If you'll remember when the NRL was talking about returning, it was very much being positioned as somewhat of a saviour for culture going forward considering we're all lost in our homes without live sport. And so I'm kind of surprised that maybe it didn't do quite as well. It also drew uh, 355 355,000 viewers on Fox League Live. That then went up to just over 600,000 across all the streams on Foxtel. So, yeah, good result, but I was prepared to be shocked. And what else went on in television this week? Yeah, so we've seen MasterChef performing really well. It keeps sitting just below that 1 million Metro viewers, which last season would not have been likely, but this season it's just doing I think better than any of us could have really expected and house rules hasn't has still not really picked up for seven either unfortunately it's been sitting around half of the audience that the voice and master chef have been delivering so I think it'll be really interesting if we having this conversation again next week to see how well big brother actually does when it returns because considering seven at the moment doesn't necessarily have that primetime platform to launch big brother off of it'll be interesting to see if that impacts uh the ratings that it does get well hannah that feels like a great time to transition into my chat with sonia kruger the host of big brother as i do ask her what ratings number will be a success and she does answer it so we've got that on record to hold her to account next week so stick around now for my chat with sonia kruger the host of big brother
I'm joined now on the Mumbrella cast by the new host of the returned big brother, Sonia Kruger. Sonia, welcome. Thank you, Vivian. Thanks for having me. Now, look, I suspect I know your answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do we need Big Brother to come back with everything that's going on in 2020? Why is this something that you think audiences want? Yeah, it's because I think that now more than ever, it's a show that we can all relate to, having been through isolation ourselves and being locked in our own homes, I think uh, it's actually timely for Big Brother to return. I mean, it was always on the cards sort of pre-pandemic, if you like. Um, sorry about my child screaming. In the- <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> you know, so so it, it had been slated to, to return, but it feels to me like everything that's happened this year has just given more relevance to the return of Big Brother. Uh, certainly uh, this new reimagined version of the show too. So do you think people who used to watch it back in the day will have an appetite for it or are you trying to get a new demographic and a new type of Big Brother watcher? Well, we want to, we want to make sure the show has broad appeal um, and we also want to make sure that those existing fans of Big Brother are, you know, happy with the show and uh, the nostalgic elements that are important to them are preserved. So we've, we've been mindful of that in this, um, in the creation of the new series, but it was important uh, more so to, to bring the show, you know, into the year 2020. If you think about the fact that Big Brother turned 20 years old last year, Reality television was very different 20 years ago. We would watch a housemaid in the kitchen making themselves a sandwich and we, we thought that was amazing and wonderful and we'd never seen anything like it. Um, now our viewing, you know, habits have changed, our, our consumption levels have changed and we want more out of every episode, you know, Generally, we're, we're a time-poor kind of community, so we, we want an outcome. Um, you know, we want it delivered to us in a, in a, in a sophisticated fashion. Uh, we want to be able to access it on different platforms. So there were a whole lot of changes that needed to occur to, to bring Big Brother into, you know, this new era. Now, I was watching Big Brother back in 2013 when you were hosting and I think Tim Dormer won that year mm-hmm. and everybody used to sit around and think much like other reality formats like Australian Survivor they would think oh god I could win that show yeah. so what do you think it takes to actually win this show and is it any different this time around it is slightly different this time around although I still believe that authenticity is one of the big keys of success on Big Brother. I think the viewers uh, can spot a fake a mile away and you know we've also been mindful when casting the show that that the housemates are people who are very authentic and and relatable um, they're people that could be working in the office with you or living next door um, so, you know, the, the idea, the notion that, you know, I think we all watch Big Brother and think, oh, what sort of housemate would I be? Would people like me? Could I win it? Is part of the appeal of the show too. So in this new version, however, strategy becomes important because what's changed about the game is that housemates compete in a nominations challenge and whoever wins that challenge then wins the right to nominate three housemates for eviction the housemates put it to a vote, somebody goes home. Two people stay, however, and those two people generally are going to go looking for the person who nominated them. So there's going to be lots of uh, strategy and, and backstabbing, for want of a better word. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, element, I suppose, of revenge, <laughs> yes. Um, there's, there's a lot of drama. There's also a lot of comedy. Um, those two things that kind of, you know, uh, aren't that um, far apart really, are they? Um, so it's an interesting dynamic that's that's occurred with this particular series 
you know, there's a lot of jeopardy in the lead up to those nomination challenges because it becomes more and more important to win them in order to remain safe. But it's a poison chalice because by remaining safe, you're nominating housemates and that is putting a target on you. So what type of housemate would you be, Sonia? How would you win Big Brother if you were in there? I'm the tidy housemate. I'm, I'm cleaning up after everybody else. I'm doing washing up. I'm putting away the dishes. I'm probably in the laundry. You know? Like I'm that. I'm that. I I bore everybody into submission. <laughs> so um, speaking speaking of hygiene, though, you guys suddenly had to contend with an unexpected pandemic while people were locked away in the house. How did you tackle it, that? I bet it wasn't in your plans. It certainly wasn't in the plans, no. And yet, ironically, we shot this series at this purpose-built house in Manly, very close to Quarantine Station. (laughs) Uh, uh, There is something really, um, trying to find the right word for this, Vivian, but serendipitous, I don't know if that's the right word. There's some weird kismet there, though, you know, the fact that the housemates were essentially in lockdown before the rest of the country. Um, They went into lockdown kind of pre-pandemic and then as it became clear, uh, you know, the situation was developing quickly, uh, we felt it was necessary to let them know what was going on so the executive producer spoke to them. Our production continued on because we were able to maintain social distancing um, standards and then Unfortunately, one of our crew members had a brush with somebody who had the virus. And so while that person was being tested, we stopped production for a couple of days. And as soon as we got the all clear, we resumed. So the housemates, essentially, they didn't leave the house. They just had a couple of days where they watched a few movies and didn't have to take part in any challenges. So they quite liked the little mini break. Um, And then when I went back in there, I told them about the, um, the brawl that had erupted over toilet paper in a shopping centre. They actually didn't believe me. (laughs) So they're going to emerge into quite a different world from when they went in, which was always the case, but it feels particularly amplified in 2020. How do you think they're going to go coming coming out into the world as it is now? Totally different place. You're right. It's... um, It's really hard to even sort of put yourself in their situation. I mean, we know what it's like um, having been fully aware of the developing situation. You know, you you, you can get used to it in increments. They were kind of hit with it and um, almost blindsided, I guess, by the fact that this had happened. So it's hard to make those adjustments, but we did have a wellness coordinator who spoke to them all about it and made sure that they... um, were across, you know, what was happening on the outside with their own friends and families and, and to make sure that they, they their minds were put to rest about that. But, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's certainly an adjustment coming out of uh, a house, going in the world is in one shape and you're coming out and the world is in a completely different shape. Now, one of the things that Australian television can be criticised for is that it's not diverse enough and it doesn't accurately reflect the makeup of Australian society. How did Seven and Big Brother tackle diversity and casting the housemates to make sure that there was a wide range of people in there? Well, Seven in conjunction with Endemol Shine handled the casting of the show and I think um, they've got a pretty good cross-section of ages. I think the youngest is 19, the eldest is 62. Um, we have people from different backgrounds, uh, different different cultures, you know, pretty much all walks of life. So I wasn't involved in the actual casting process but I believe that, you know, their intent was to to represent, you know, to reflect our society as it stands today. And there's been some pretty big controversies in Big Brothers of years gone by that have generated headlines and all sorts of think pieces about whether or not, you know, late night, uh, the late night versions of Big Brother are appropriate and should be on our screens. Mm. How do you tackle that this year? Is it a family-friendly show? It is, yeah, it, it definitely is. It's... um. 
it, having said that, it still maintains, a, you know, a, a touch of that big brother edge and appeal. And I think there's probably, um, you know, adults will watch it on one level, level and children on another level. Um, but it is very much, uh, you know, a show that the whole family can watch. There is a, a, the official spin-off show, which is Big Brother's I Spy, will be running on 7 Plus. And that's where I will, you know, will reveal some of the unseen moments from the show. There'll be interviews with evicted housemates um, and we'll sort of delve a little bit deeper into some of the dramas uh, that go on on the show. Um, But as far as an up-late, uncut uh, version, no, we won't be doing one of those. And one final question from me, Sonia, what does success look like for Big Brother in 2020? Is there a ratings number that you're looking for? Is there a certain amount of chatter that you're looking for? When audiences are so fractured and there's so much going on in the world, what will make you think that this has been worth the return to seven and worth uh, Big Brother being revived? I think we'd be looking to for a strong uh, representation in the in the key demos. Uh, you know, in terms of a raw number, um, you know, we've got some some strong programs running at the moment on Australian television. And um, although you know the, the numbers have changed slightly, I guess eight hundred thousand is probably considered you know uh, a solid number if you are winning in those key demos. So, so fingers crossed. Um, we, you know, we we get there and and maybe more. All right, Sonia Kruger, thank you for joining us on the Mumbrella Cast. Thank you so much, Vivian. Next, the week in advertising. The countdown has begun. For those of you looking to avoid the late entry fees, the Mumbrella Awards' first entry deadline is just a matter of weeks away. These awards celebrate the industry's most groundbreaking work that's taken place over the past 15 months, with a grand total of 30 categories up for grabs. If you work across media, marketing, advertising, PR or production, it's time to throw your hat in the ring for a chance to win wide recognition at Australia's most prestigious industry awards. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella awards for more information. So Zoe, a couple of big people moves in Adland this week. Yes, that's right. So to start off with, we had the departure of the CEO of WPPAUNZ creative agency, Wonderman Thompson, John Guttridge. He has stepped down from the role after just over a year with Wonderman Thompson. Prior to that, he was the Australasia CEO of JWT for 10 years. And as we know, JWT and Wonderman merged early last year to create Wonderman Thompson. It actually makes Guttridge the last CEO who oversaw one of the famous WPP AUNZ creative mergers leave. In 2017, the White Agency and Grey Group came together to form White Grey. And at the time, they had co-CEOs, Mumbrella's favourite leadership structure, Paul Warboys and Miles Joyce. Uh, They left within weeks of each other um, in early 2018 and White Grey's current CEO, Lee Simpson, took over. And then we saw the merger of VML and YNR to create VML YNR, which also had co-CEOs Pete Bozolkowski and Aidan Hepburn. They both left last year, again, within weeks of each other. Bozolkowski is obviously now the CEO of Cleminger BBDO Sydney. So we've seen all of the CEOs now who have merged these agencies leave. And I just am wondering what that indicates. Look, I must admit, I, I'm starting to have a bit of a cynical thought or rather, I'm starting to think there's a cynicism behind this mer- this sort of strategy. Clearly, with holding companies, the model, if not broken, is breaking. Too many brands, 
back when WPP was run by Sir Martin Sorrell, it was always about you acquire more and more and keep feeding the beast. Um, and then those sort of rules changed. So you've got to do something about those number of brands, but you want to keep all of the clients. So, of course, by announcing it's a merger, you can cram everything together. And where the cynical part of me sort of wonders is, in order to do that and in order to keep the clients, have you got to say to them, hey, but, you know, it's still the same boss, effectively, which is why you go for these joint CEOs, even if you know deep down it's not going to work. And you actually, this is the cynical part, maybe don't even care whether it works. It's all get the merger done, keep the clients, um, don't worry so much about the heritage of the brand. And this was JWT, for God's sake. You know, just one of the, the great global brands, you know, a, a century-old heritage just blown up. Um, and it it feels like that doesn't matter so much as the short-term dollars. And, of course, that's a global strategy rather than local. But I do wonder whether that was uh, that was perhaps what was going on there with all of these joint CEOs. Yes, well, it's interesting you bring up the heritage brands point because I've heard a lot of different stories from different people from a couple of these mergers where people from the agency that had the heritage brand say that, you know, that agency really took over the smaller one. But then in the case of VML YNR, I've had sources from the VML side of things say that really the internal structure now is VML has just taken on the YNR brand, but it's really the VML capability that's driving the ship. And again, let's remember YNR, Young and Rubicon, again, an incredibly famous agency brand. You know, these are the sort of brands that you hear Don Draper banding around in uh, in Mad Men. So who's taking over from John Gartridge? So it's Lee Leggett, who was the CEO of IPG Media Brands Media Agency Initiative between 2014 and 2016. Since then, she's been consulting with a lot of big agencies in Australia, including Havis and in the publicist group as well. Interesting seeing um, Lee Leggett come through, uh, you know, a, a, a return to the creative side for her because, of course, you know, way back in the day before she had a dalliance over at Initiative, the media agency, she was with uh, with um, DDB in London. So, um you know, I guess it's back to the uh, the natural heartland. And speaking of creative agencies, um, another leadership change as well over at uh, at Clems, Cleminger BBDO Melbourne. Yes, that's right. And I guess to the naked eye, this probably wasn't the most interesting piece of news. But what stood out to me is that the two new hires that they have made is marking almost an entirely new leadership team at Cleminger Melbourne. So they've had Jacqueline Witts come in as the head of planning and Chief Operating Officer Dave Keating come in to replace Ben Kidney, who is now the head of digital engagement at Amazon Web Services Australia. We saw Cleminger, BBDO Sydney and Melbourne CEO Nick Garrett leave about halfway through last year and taking over was his deputy CEO, Gail Weil. Uh, she only stayed in the role for about seven months, I think, and the agency now has another new CEO, Jim Gall. In March, we also saw Chief Creative Officer Stephen DeWolf leave to become Chief Creative Officer at BBH London. And since then, they have hired two new executive creative directors from Droga 5, Jim Curtis and Ryan Fitzgerald, to sort of take the place that Stephen DeWolf has left. So really we have seen a lot of turnover in the leadership team and it will be quite interesting to see where Clems goes from here because it will be a completely different team that led Clems in those golden years we saw them have not long ago. Look, it will. And I suppose that's the thing. It's got this reputation globally as one of the the great creative agencies, certainly one of the most award-winning. I suppose the one thought that does occur in terms of the sort of the cultural continuity is you've got James McGrath as um, creative chairman who, you know, he's quite understated, but he is the cultural force in the room. He's 
you know, an incredibly intelligent, strategic, clever, thoughtful, creative, um, kind of one of a kind. Um, I, I'd, I'd suggest that the key, the key relationship at Clems is always between James and whoever happens to be the CEO at the time. And, you know, they, there have been some great relationships, you know, the many years where Peter Biggs was the, the CEO and that, that was in particular was seen as a fantastic relationship, you know, cause they're, I guess one of the things about creative agencies is effectively there are two bosses, you know, most organizations, you've got the CEO and then everything else, but with creative agencies, that top creative, and as I say, the title here is creative chairman, but often it's obviously ECD makes such a big difference. So I, I suspect for me, the canary in the coal coal mine would be if, if, if ever James went anywhere. Yeah, that's interesting. And also, I guess from the market side of things, we we forget, I think, that CHE Proximity CEO Chris Howitson is actually the head of agencies at Clemenger Group. And I think publicly, we're yet to see what kind of impact that role has and what it really, uh, what really his remit is there. So, I think there might be a bit of change for Clems in the pipeline. Yeah, look, that's an interesting one because you you have got this weird sister agency relationship where you've mm. got um, Clems, famous for amazing work, but with, you know, what was certainly perceived as quite an, uh, and this is more negative than I intend it to be, but old-fashioned structure, or that was the way it was certainly seen. And I think that was one of the things that Nick Garrett was brought in to sort of begin to evolve and, and began to do so. But next door, you've got CHEP, CHE Proximity, which has got this really interesting model where it's much more, it's almost like a kind of the sort of consultancy model. Um, it's much more about, you know, solving, specifically solving client problems, quite tech savvy, you know, a, a, a different way of approaching the world. So I, I sort of got the impression when um, uh, Chris Harrison stepped up and was given this extra brief of sort of looking across the whole Clemenger group, it was about bringing some of that consultancy thinking across the group. And for a while, I suspect that um, the hope was that they'd be able to keep both uh, Nick Garrett over at Clems and Chris both within the organization with sort of separate roles. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that Nick's leaving was because of, you know, Chris being promoted arguably over him, but, um, but certainly, you know, the, it, it, it feels like Chris's greater involvement in, uh, in Clems um, would, 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 would make sense. And of course, the other thing to be thinking about is Clem Sydney, Clemager BBDO Sydney have got even more challenges than Melbourne. Cause you know, Melbourne at the very least has got, a great client list and of course uh the uh the bbdo mantra is the work the work the work so let's talk about work from someone else mnc sarchi what have they been up to so mnc sarchi have released a campaign in support of the sydney film festival which was cancelled back in march but is now going to take place in june online the campaign film sees a group of Australian actors and filmmakers, including names like Nicole Kidman, Rose Byrne, Hugo Weaving, David Wenham, reciting a poem written by MNC Saatchi's group creative director, Andy Fleming, titled Stories. Once upon a time, there was the story. A glorious tale told to flame-danced faces. In deserts and castles and faraway places. The story remembered by past generations and carried through battles between furious nations. It cares not for decorum. It hears no decrees. It refuses commandments. It won't stand for these calls for silence. Because it has to be heard. The endless protector, the fearless collector, the flickering projector, the keeper of the sound and the absurd. And of course, some Zoe, I, I, as someone who's been on this beat for a while, um, 
I, a, I almost feel like I can recognise Andy's writing style now when I hear it, but also when I see it in long copy ads. One of MNC's, I guess, most treasured clients being the Commonwealth Bank. When they moved to their new position of CAN, um, uh, there was a rather similar approach there where they asked a Tony Collette to read out a poem written by Andy Fleming. There's a four-letter word as offensive as any. It holds back the few, puts a stop to the many. You can't climb that mountain, you can't cross the sea, you can't become anything you want to be. You can't hit a century, they can't find a cure. She can't think about leaving or searching for more. Because can't is a word with the habit of stopping the ebb and flow of ideas. It keeps dropping itself where we know in our hearts it's not needed and saying don't go when we could have succeeded. So just proof that there's no such thing as something new under the sun. But back to the Sydney Film Festival campaign, Tim, the poem that Fleming wrote this time around advocates for the importance of telling diverse stories, which is what the Sydney Film Festival is all about, particularly as they highlight a lot of independent filmmakers in Australia. Uh, Fleming said writing the poem for this ad was a privilege. He said, Stories are one of the fundamental reasons for us being us, from stories carved onto Egyptian tombs, embroidered into tapestries, or shot on 35 millimetres. They share knowledge, history, and humanity. Next, a surprise court ruling. This week saw a big legal ruling. It turns out publishers will be responsible for readers' comments on their Facebook page, even though they can't control them. Brit? Yeah, so the case was back in court earlier this week. The Court of Appeal was reviewing a Supreme Court decision that was made last year. And the Supreme Court basically said that as, you know, publishers of reader comments on Facebook that media outlets can be sued if those comments are therefore defamatory. So the Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian and Sky News appealed that ruling. Obviously, it has big implications for the industry beyond those outlets, but those were the outlets involved in the case. And the Court of Appeal agreed with the Supreme Court judge and said that, yes, they are publishers according to defamation laws and that means that anything made um, public on their Facebook posts is therefore published by them and therefore their legal liability. Um, The publishers were also ordered to pay for Vola's legal costs for the appeal and yeah it's it's an interesting decision because it was one that was met with huge uproar last year and you know, I don't think that the publishers thought that the appeal would be dismissed. I think that, you know, they went into it with every hope and intention that it would indeed be upheld and that they would win at that level. So yeah, a big a big decision, not only for those publishers, but also for the wider industry. So comments can't be turned off on public Facebook pages, which was a big part of the publisher's legal argument. They can be hidden or deleted once they're already published. So the Supreme Court judge last year said that basically they should implement filters, which would stop comments with certain words from being published. So, for example, if you were to set up a filter with the word the, then any comments that would contain that word wouldn't be published. But of course, this doesn't then stop misspelt comments or comments that don't include that word or comments that only include an image from being published. So the argument was very much Facebook is not built for pre-moderation and that is why we cannot do this. But one of the Court of Appeal judges said that the publications, and I quote, facilitated the posting of comments on articles published in their newspapers and had sufficient control over the platform to be able to delete postings when they became aware that they were defamatory. The court also interestingly emphasised that by posting on Facebook, publishers are essentially encouraging that kind of engagement and encouraging those comments and so they should be responsible for them. So it's still in the Supreme Court, the main case. This was kind of a a side appeal for one of the issues of that case. 
So it's not yet clear if the comments that are actually at the heart of the case were defamatory. Those issues are still being debated, but it's a it's a big blow for publishers, that's for sure. Next, Viv and I chat to Mark for now about his intriguing new podcast. This week saw the launch of a new podcast from Mark for now. Listeners will probably know Mark best from SBS's The Feed or possibly his work as a movie reviewer, maybe even Hungry Beast. <laughs> These days, one of his focuses is podcast documentaries. The latest is Nut Jobs. Mark, welcome. And let's start there. Nut Jobs is quite a specific genre of food culture that you're diving into. Yes. So uh, last year I did a series for Audible called It Burns, which is about the race to breed the world's hottest chili. And um, it did surprisingly well, particularly in the US, actually, of all places. And uh, while I was working on it, one of the producers mentioned to me, hey, have you heard that there was $10 million worth of nuts stolen from the state of California? And I remember just like looking at him and turning my head just going, I'm sorry, what? And I do this thing sometimes where I just get a little bit obsessive. And I just started emailing all of these people that were involved in, in, this, uh, in this heist and this crime. And before I knew it, I sort of had like this five-page idea of like, actually, I think this is a great series. I think we can do this. And much to my amazement and bewilderment, uh, Audible said, yeah, you should go do that series. And so it's, uh, it's been a sort of a, it's been a really strange journey, to be honest. Well, look, and I was going to ask about that commission process. You know, it, it's still fairly new, I suppose, that podcasts actually do get commissioned. Audible, obviously owned by Amazon, big international company. Um, that market for podcasts, does it actually, if it's going to get picked up, does it need some sort of international aspect to the story, do you think? It's interesting because uh, Audible's, Audible Australia is who commissioned me and who commissioned me for both of these series. And no, in, in many ways, no, I think actually what they're looking for in the local market is, is, is local stories, local voices. It just so happens that both of my two series had these access points around the world. And for me, that was intriguing because I love doing journalism around the world. It's become an increasing part of my sort of portfolio of stuff particularly with SBS. I've been doing more sort of documentaries in Japan and Hong Kong and places like that. But I think the surprising thing was when It Burns, I think It Burns went to number one on the Audible charts in the US and we won some awards in, in Europe and America. And I think it stood out to me that, I guess more than anything, it was actually surprising that having an Australian going, doing a story in the US, there was very little resistance to it. In fact, <laughs> when, order, when it burns did do, start doing quite well I would wake up to these emails from like Mary in Milwaukee saying I really like your accent and so I would think it was nice to know that it wasn't something that stood in the way and just as a journalist being able to step into a place where there's something really interesting about being an Australian in the US because you don't have an enormous amount of baggage. They're mostly just curious as to why you are there in the first place. And it sort of allows you to approach stories quite freely. Like, I mean, there's a few other things with that, but it's like I don't really look like what they imagine an Australian looks like. More often than not, they think we all look like Hemsworth brothers. And try as I might, I do not look like a Hemsworth brother. And so there's all this like natural curiosity about you stepping into their world as much as you have about them and, and trying to build this sort of eight episode series. And so it it's actually proven to be quite fortuitous to work with a big American organization like Audible because they've been able to push they've been able to push that throughout their different markets in the UK and the US in particular. And it's worked out so far surprisingly well, I guess. Mark, people say that there's a podcast for everyone and a podcast about everything, but are you <laughs> deliberately going after the most niche topics possible? <laughs> um, no, it's for me, it's not about niche. It's about, um, I have this philosophy for doing stories. It's I like small doorways into big worlds. And so, you know, It Burns was this weird, juicy, chewy idea of like, why is there an international death match about the race to breed the world's hottest chili? And nut jobs is why a $10 million worth of nuts being stolen. But both of them open up big worlds. And so, you know, It Burns was really about pain because all of these people that took part in this race had really damaged emotional lives. And it became really clear through talking to people that it was a great key into their lives. It was how do they use physical pain to deal with emotional pain? 
with this, it's a much bigger story. It's much more complicated. And this heist of nuts is important to understand. It happens in a very specific part of the US where 80% of the world's almonds come from. And so this crime is a doorway into food, how we make it, how we grow it, the impact it has on us, the impact it has on the world. And And I like, you know, I do love quirky, weird stories. I always have, but it's a great way of like opening up a a doorway and finding something bigger there. And I think one of the great advantages of of audio storytelling, and as you know, I've worked in, you know, TV and I've written some books and stuff like that, but audio presents this really interesting opportunity because it's super intimate and you have this license to go weird places and the audience actually invite you to do it. I found this, the, the more surprising tones you can offer them, the more engaged they tend to be. And this is a story that, I mean, <laughs> by the time you hit episode two, I'm in a bulletproof vest in an almond car traveling around with, uh, investigators in the dead of night. Like it, it is filled with weird twists and turns, some of which I thought would happen and a lot of which I did not think would happen. And I actually think it's one of the great joys of the medium that you can do that. It's, it's, you're not constantly shoving it down, shoving it down into, you know, a five minute package. You, you are, you're inviting them into a bigger world and they kind of reward you for that, I find. Well, something else I wanted to ask you about, and I guess if you had to sort of pick the the, the two ends of the spectrum for your your own career and what you do, this is probably it. On the one hand, you've got this really quirky, really kind of in-depth uh, sort of investigative side of podcasting. The other thing which I've, I've always really admired you as a journalist and as an interviewer is when I've seen you do these, what should be incredibly shallow, four or five minutes junkets with TVs, with film celebrities where they're wheeling in another journalist every four or five minutes. I, I noticed, and I guess this was particularly your time with, with you know, sort of SBS The Feed, you somehow managed to come up with just the intriguing question where the celebrity pre- obviously not been asked that a million times that day and they just suddenly opened up. So I just wonder how do you, in those tiny little junkets, how do you think about getting the most out of them? Firstly, thank you. I'm blushing. Uh, it's very kind of you. Uh, I think I did a lot of junkets when I worked, I worked for Channel 10 in morning TV uh, about 10 years ago and they actually sent me off to do junkets. And I remember no disrespect to Channel 10, who obviously I love, but I didn't love doing those junkets because you felt like you were doing filler. And when it came to start the feed, I actually asked the, the AP at the time, Nick's like, hey, do you still want me to do interviews with celebrities? And he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But just like, see if there's a way you can do it differently. And I, there was something that stuck with me out of those conversations. And it's that if you treat something like filler, filler is what it will become. And so I thought, and, and if you've ever done junkets, they're, um, they're everything about the way they are designed. They're designed to make you have the most boring conversation ever. And I've, and I've said this to movie studios. And so I took it as a challenge. Like, what is the thing I can ask you? Not to shock you, not to, not to get you off script, but just the thing that's going to make you lean in and go, oh, okay. And, and it's like a signal to the person you're talking to. Like, can we go somewhere with this? Can I be the conversation that, that makes you feel like you did something different today. And, and I, you know, I, I'm really sympathetic to movie stars and musicians that have to do those junkets. Obviously they paid a lot of money and, you know, we shouldn't feel that sympathetic, but it is hard to sit in a room and answer what attracted you to the role 45 times. I'm, I'm totally sympathetic to how hard that is. And so I took it as an opportunity to be, all right, well, what, what can I offer you that you might enjoy and, and might bring you to life? And as we started doing more of those interviews on the feed, and uh, they started to generate a lot more views, interestingly, on particularly on Facebook. Um, and, I, you know, we just found ourselves in a position where it was a great opportunity to see if we could do, if we could take that time, and it is so limited, particularly when they're in the country, can we take that time and, and, and offer the audience and also offer the star themselves something that they're not getting elsewhere? And I, I'm actually really happy. <laughs> I'm actually really happy with um, the time that we've done it. Obviously, there's no famous people visiting us right now. But uh, I, I really enjoy the job of researching to see if I can find that thing, find something that's going to excite them, that's going to make them sit up and go, oh, actually, I am really passionate about that. And I do want to talk about that. It's a, it's a wonderful challenge and it teaches you a lot about um, how to craft a question with a really limited time as well to, to kind of excite a person. Now, Mark, you mentioned Facebook there as an effective 
tool to get content out there. How do you feel about Facebook as a content distribution platform now, particularly when there's so much pushback about Mark Zuckerberg not taking a strong enough stand against Donald Trump, all of its privacy issues, also the implications now of the ruling in Australia about uh, publishers being liable for defamatory comments by users underneath articles. It feels like a bit of a, a minefield. Do you still love getting your content out there through that minefield? No, 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 no. I mean, I have incredibly conflicting feelings about Facebook as a, as a platform. And anybody that's ever listened to my um, my ABC show, download this show, knows that I have really conflicting feelings about Facebook. It has been an incredibly powerful way, particularly the feed has found its audience. You know, you've got to remember we were a, a tiny show on a secondary channel and yet we would still command, you know, millions of views on Facebook, which I still think is amazing. And I appreciate that it, it gave us that audience. Um, in terms of how it's impacting the rest of the uh, information ecosystem and the responsibility or lack of responsibility Facebook have taken for their their impact. I, look, I'm not unsympathetic. I understand that it's a really complicated ecosystem that they're managing, but the idea that they are not, uh, that they don't regard themselves as a publisher is nonsense to me. They are. They, and they they change the reality for people that, that are on those platforms. They, they change what kind of information they get. And for them to say that they aren't a, a publisher just to me is, is it makes no sense whatsoever. So, you know, like every publisher has a complicated relationship with Facebook, right? We've been using them to get traffic for a long time and they've been using us to build up uh, time spent on platform. It, I just don't think it's as uh, mutually beneficial as it once was. And, you know, at the same time, we're finding more ways of communicating with our audiences, I, some of which on platforms that are still owned by Facebook. I'm thinking here of, of Instagram. But I think the more media organisations take back that relationship with their audience, the better long term. I think if you build a business where you're relying on a social media platform to bring you your audience, it's super risky and super dangerous, as we have seen when Facebook pretty much turned off the taps on video views, as we've seen certain organisations that built their business on social views, BuzzFeed, Vice, as, as possible examples there. Um, so, yeah, the more a media organisation owns its relationship with the, the consumer, the better, I think. And what about for people like you and your career where... We've seen things like obviously podcasting, various other kind of digital channels. It seems for journalists to offer up opportunities to build something of a, I guess, portfolio career. Do you do you have a bit of a plan on how that looks, where you go from here? Mm, you know, it's. I'd love to say that there was some like Machiavellian plan where me and my agent sit down and we plan it out. And reality is it's a lot more ad hoc than that. Um, and... It has a lot more to do with the fact that I get bored quite easily uh, and, I, and I like different challenges. I've always had two or three jobs at once ever since I was a teenager. And I think part of where that comes from is I like the freedom to be able to find a story or a person and go, what, what platform or what brand does that fit best in? And I guess I've been very extraordinarily lucky to work with SBS because within SBS, I can, you know, I can host forum shows on Inside. I can do half-hour documentaries around the world with Dateline and the feed. I can do celebrity or, or just amazing people interviews for the feed. So e even within that one brand, there's a bunch of opportunities. I think the I've, I started out in radio to begin with, and I think what Audible have sort of given me, and it works well, I think, for them, is that they're really interested in uh, novelistic sort of um, audio, immersive audio um, and that's something that I had been wanting to do for a long time. And it sort of was super fortuitous that um, they asked me when they, they launched to kind of come on and, and do some stuff because I had been looking to do something that was longer and more in-depth and had a mixture of light and shade and um, you could work with, you know, hooking the audience in different ways. And that's really what they're about. It's about sort of enveloping people with great audio storytelling and um, I guess I was really lucky that they became, that they were there at the right time and they've sort of, and we've fostered this relationship that's worked really well. And they're really happy to, you know, to, to, to invest in Australian voices telling stories around the world, which I think is incredible, particularly at this point in time where, you know, I mean, it goes without saying the media world's 
unreliable and complicated. I think everybody knows that, but it, it's been lovely to work with um with them and and get and do sorts of stuff that you just couldn't do elsewhere. So beyond Audible commissioning a third podcast from you about some crazy niche food scandal, how <laughs> will you measure the success of nut jobs? That's a good question. How do you measure the success of nut jobs? Um, oh, I mean, I, I know for Audible's standpoint, they care a great deal about audience reviews. Um, I think one of the surprising things that came out of Nut Jobs, uh, out of uh, It Burns rather, was the sheer number of awards it picked up, which is surprising even like, it's, it's, I find it surprising that uh, Nut, um, It Burns got nominated for like a Rose Door and I've won the James Beard Award, which is like the Oscars of food. And that I find absolutely bonkers, to be honest with you. I think you've got some sort of nod at Mumbrella's Publish Awards, if memory serves. Yes, yes, highly commended. Highly commended. I remember it well. Uh, And I think that has been, I think that comes into it as well. Uh, It's a, I mean, I'm loathe to speak too much on Audible's behalf because obviously there are people that can speak there, but having done two series for them, I think what they're interested in is, is stuff where people feel like they're getting their money's worth. Because it is, it is something that I mean. Certainly, you can sign up now and listen to Nut Jobs for free, um, um, as and when you sign up as a subscriber. But ultimately, I think it's good that they're investing decent-sized budgets into content because this, if you want something to be done well, you know, you got to invest money in it, and they are. And I think, uh, and it's not just with my series. I mean, the stuff they're doing with um, with comedies. So take uh, Mark Humphrey and Dan Illich and Casey Adding's series, Riot Act. You know, they're doing scripted stuff, sci-fi stuff. I think that stuff that, you know, a lot of that hasn't really had proper investment been put into it. And to have a really big publisher come in and do that, I think is incredible. And I know, you know, as soon as It Burns came out, I got all these text messages from people who I've been working with for years at like, you know, the ABC and Ten just being like, tell me what it's like to work with Audible. So I think there's a real excitement about having a new place where you can tell stories and, and their relationship with creators I found. I found really good. Mark, thank you very much for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week. But before we go, have you checked out Mumbrella's agency report card yet? Exclusive to Mumbrella Pro, it's an in-depth analysis of the 25 most talked about creative agencies in Australia with two new reports dropping every week. BMF and Ogilvy are the latest report cards released on Mumbrella Pro. Other agency report cards already released include Host Havas, Saatchi and Saatchi, Thinkabell, The Monkeys, Cummins and Partners, Special Group, CHE Proximity and DDB Sydney. To see how the expert industry panel scored them all, take the free trial today. Go to mumbrella.com.au slash pro for more information. That is it for the Mumbrella cast for this week. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Toodle pip.